Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. From the cotton fields to the cotton club, from the back roads to the boardwalk, the Rhythm Ranch is the intersection of a hundred different musical highways from swing, classic country, rhythm and blues, early rock and roll, and more. I'm your host, Jay Peterson. Join me Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on the Rhythm Ranch, where we dig up a hundred years of music by the roots. See you back at the ranch, Tuesdays at 2. It's just a couple of minutes before 10 o'clock in the morning, and you are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming and podcasting at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows. Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinecki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinecki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, <clears throat> we will be discussing the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. The act was signed into law October 10, 1980, and this is part two of that discussion. Uh, my co-host today is Maria Gerard, director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center. And our special guest today is Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Um, now last month we talked about uh, some background of the, uh, the history of the Land Claims Settlement Act. We went from uh, the, the mid-1970s to the act in 1980. And we talked about uh, some of the expectations of the Native people at that time, reference to this, this Settlement Act, uh, and their desire to become economically self-sufficient. Um, I have, uh, my co-host Maria has done some research on the Settlement Act. So uh, Maria, you want to give us uh, a view of uh, some of what your research has found? Sure, absolutely. This uh, topic of the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, absolutely fascinating. And um, it's very complex, and there's so many aspects of it in which you could, you know, really do an in-depth study. My original interest in it is about the uh, original meaning and intent and intent of the act. And uh, I, in conducting my research, I spent time with those... Um, Penobscot folks who were the original negotiators of the, um, the Settlement Act and talked to them about what they uh, would view as the original meaning and the original intent of pursuing this claim. And interestingly enough, the, the title of the, the Settlement Act, the Maine Indian Claims 
Settlement Act leaves out what the main um, purpose of the claim was, and that was land. So I often refer to it as the Maine Indian Land Claims because that's how we hear it talked about at, at home um, up at Penobscot Nation. But it had to do with land, and the poverty of the people went hand in hand with the loss of the land that had um, started ever since the early 1800s. Well, actually, again, uh, I guess it would be the early 1700s. So um, in my research, um, there's this a concept in, in the realm of history, because I'm, I'm yeah, a historian, um, and it's called originalism. And it's often discussed in relationship to the Constitution, but it also is used uh, to talk about other treaties, as, uh, you know, as an example, the Blackfoot treaties that were um, negotiated between the Blackfoot Indians and um, Canada in the late 1800s, talks about originalism. And what it uh, says is that in order to arrive at a true uh, meaning and an original intent, that you need to know the historical context in which the document uh, the treaty uh, was framed in um, the historical context in which it originated. So I like to look at the historical context in the 1960s, the 1970s, which is those decades that, uh, from which this Maine Indian Land Claims was born. And uh, I know last, last um, show, you, uh, <laughs> you talked a little bit about that, con- that context. I, I, I did, yeah. yeah. But I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, um, like I said, I originally started looking at the original meaning and intent from a Penobscot perspective, and I found that what, the, what they wanted was uh, the land and also money as restitution for the loss of land for so many years. Um, but then I got interested in, um, well, if you, if you had to look at the original meaning from the state perspective... Uh, what was it that they were looking to do, and what was that historical context? And so in the 1960s, the tribes were living in uh, extreme uh, poverty, um, very little opportunities, uh, very little economic opportunities, social opportunities. They were just um, nothing left to lose, basically. And the the state had already always maintained... Uh, control over the tribes. And so what they were looking to do is maintain that control. They weren't willing to lose uh, the control that they had had this whole time on, on the tribes. And so that's evident in a lot of the, um, the newspaper articles and a lot of the legislative reports. And, um, and most of all, I, I dare say that they were pretty angry uh, for these small tribes coming out of nowhere and and suing, having the gall to sue you know, the state of Maine, that was uh, pretty significant. And um, it was, they were very angry, and the, the newspapers of the time reflect that anger. Uh, There's a lot of fear-mongering. Um, a lot of the headline news uh, implied that, you know, these Indians are going to take, take away homes. Um, and there was, and I dare say, racist. It was a really strong racist attitude during that time. Um, you know, you would read one headline that would talk about uh, Indians going to take away your homes, and then the next article would be about the reestablishment of the Ku Klux Klan in in Enfield, ten miles north of Indian Island, is how they would ex- 
explain where Enfield was. So it was... Um, if I remember, uh, I remember somewhere uh, seeing the Maine as being the first state where the Ku Klux Klan marched in broad daylight. And I'm not sure what town that was. It was either uh, Enfield or Lincoln. I want to say for some reason that it was Milo, but I'm not sure. But there is a book that was written by James Lowen uh-huh. that uh, talks a lot about those uh, main towns that had uh, a huge Ku Klux Klan involvement and Milo being one of them. Um, but that name of that book is called Sundown Towns. Mm. Pretty interesting. So, so it is. So it is very interesting that uh, that uh, that conservatism, I guess, or, or racism, uh, was here in Maine back in the '60s and the '70s, and this Settlement Act sort of festered that and brought that up to the to the surface. Yeah. Well, I think that you know. For a long, long time, the the tribes knew, you know, what was going on. They knew that they were losing land. They knew that they were, you know, being controlled and and um, had very little say over their own destiny. Um, and it just took a long time for them to get the opportunity to uh, address it. I think the the civil rights movement in the '60s had a lot to do with it. I think all the uh, right ingredients came together so that they could uh, find a way to address the problem. Right, and and as I said last month about on this topic, we had the uh, phase one of the Settlement Act, and uh, I mentioned the civil rights in the 60s and, and Wayne Newell's uh, position that he felt that since the Civil Rights Act uh, became law, law of the land, that, that uh, signaled hope to the to the tribes that hey you know we there's hope for us and maybe we can get something done uh, so that's do you have more comments about the uh, the historic context of this uh, this act well uh, like I said I think a lot of it has to do with some pretty good timing at that point in time um, I always tend to credit the women from Passamaquoddy with being the momentum that uh, started this whole uh, land claims business back in the late 1960s. Um, so the story goes, there was a, a poker game uh, being played down uh, in the vicinity of Indian Township, and offered up as an ante at the poker game was a deed to a plot of land, which the the women from the uh, township community um, long viewed as their land. They had been using it uh, to gather and to harvest for um, a number of years. And when, um, I don't remember the gentleman. Uh, William Plaston. William, William Plaston, won won this deed in a poker game and then set about to to improve the land and extend his hunting camps, there was a huge sit-in. And the women organized a sit-in, got community members. um, And I'm not sure how long it lasted, but it ended um, somewhere around a lunch hour when most people had gone off to lunch and there was like three or four women uh, left um, at the sit-in and they were arrested and charged with um, criminal trespass. Right. So from that uh, original... um, sit-in and those original charges is how this 
whole land claims became born. Right. So don't get the don't get the Passamaquoddy women or the Penobscot women <laughs> mad because there's going to be you consequences. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, recap, I guess, of uh, what we talked about last month. So Chief Kirk Francis is our special guest today. He's with us. And uh, this, this month, we're going to be discussing um, more current effects of the land claims. And, and, and Kirk, um, I'm not sure how old you were in 1980, if you can remember it. <laughs> yeah, about 11. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from, from your perspective, uh, uh, you know, just tell me what you think of, of, the, of the land claims and the effects, you know, just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, thanks, Donna, for having me on the show today. Uh, it's good to be here. And just to reiterate, you're right. Do not make Passamaquoddy <laughs> and Penobscot women mad. And um, it, it's interesting to listen to the story about the poker game uh, with so much focus around gaming now and stuff. And, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's, I never thought about that when she said <laughs> that. Yeah, and, true. Uh, but I think... Uh, just touching on that era, moving up to the modern-day effects of the Settlement Act, I think when you look at that period of time in the 1960s, uh, 50s, 60s, when tribes were um, wards of the state and uh, had, had been in, mired in centuries of poverty and, and, and uh, being minimized and marginalized, and you look at um, the American Indian movement and all the um, Native communities and groups that stood up during that era and said enough. Um, Native people were all but culturally obliterated at that point from termination era policies and in various programs uh, set out to assimilate Native people. So I think um, those people deserve a ton of credit. It's easy for us today to fight these battles, um, but it certainly was those folks that in some cases put their very lives on the line to protect Native rights. So um, but in my role as chief over the last four years, you know, I've certainly had the opportunity to delve more in depth into, um, the Settlement Act and its effects on our people and, and where we're at in living, um, with this unique legal relationship with the state of Maine. And, you know, when I look back at the Senate reports from 1980, you know, that report was heralded as, as the model agreement for Native tribes and states. It was heralded as, as um, the tribes forever being free from any interference when it comes to matters internal to their tribes. Of course, we all know that um, that really hasn't been the case. And I think um, what we have now, three decades removed from the signing of that document, is, is a document in place that no longer is in the spirit of, of how that document was being heralded. And I think what has happened is that um, everybody knew at the time that, um, that there were going to be mistakes with the document. They, they knew at the time that, um, that this document would have to be continuously reviewed, continuously worked over, and this relationship was very, very complex. So um, otherwise, you know, and all the evidence points to that. So when you, when you look at... Congress delegating authority to states and tribes to be able to make those changes, which is really outside of, of what Congress usually does in dealing with Indian tribes. So um, that authority was granted to the state of Maine and to the tribes to, to make those changes. 
there's also municipal language in in the in the settlement act as and all the research shows that really what we were trying to point to there um, in that document was a way to define powers home rule in in different um, aspects of right. how we and would control our local and, and I think too if I remember correctly um, that part of the municipality designation mm -hmm. in all of our discussions with uh, our representatives and a couple of people from their side too uh, talked about uh, the reason for that was so that we could also maintain some funding for our uh, schools and, and for our educational system from the state. Mm -hmm. Not a lot, but to continue with that educational piece because we felt that was really important to do. And that was the reason behind that uh, like the, the wording and that was sort of like like a municipality was mm -hmm. we certainly did not uh, mean that as we were a municipality that's ludicrous mm -hmm. uh, you know particularly since the the tribes have been here thousands of years before the state was even created you know how the heck can we be a sub political division of of the state when we were here uh, thousands of years before mm -hmm. so no, and I think that's a great point. And I think what, what has happened, um, when you look at it is absurd to think that somehow where should be defined as municipalities when you look at the federal government and, and their definition of their relationship um, with Indian nations, which is a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. Uh, you look at the United States Constitution, which clearly spells out our rights to a sovereign status. It doesn't grant it to us. It doesn't take it away. It recognizes it. And so when you look at all those things, um, I think it's insulting to Indian people, to, to Indian governments, to, um, to say to them, well, you're somehow this political subdivision that needs to be parented when, as you point out, we've been here for thousands of years. So with all of that, you know, you look back at the document and... Um, and really, you're not comparing apples to apples anymore. Uh, so when you look at things like uh, municipal powers and and what that meant and how how they were trying to define uh, local authority and those types of things, those things have changed as well. Municipal powers and, and municipalities' statuses have changed dramatically over the last 30 years. So um, so I think uh, you know, if, that, if that's going to be the argument that somehow we agreed to be this political subdivision of the state, then uh, then really, you know, you often hear a deal's a deal. Well, the deal needs to be looked at it because um, after three decades, of course, um, all the comparative uh, issues within that document have also changed. So, so it's a very complex issue, and it's um, one that has continued to perpetuate the tribes as wards of the state. You're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Our topic today is the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. My guest is Chief Francis of the Penobscot Nation, and my co-host is Marie Girard. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, please call 866-625-9378. 866-625-9378. Chief Francis, as you were saying. Yes, um, I think, you know, when you look at um, the Maine Settlement Act and the tribes, of course, when the tribes raised this issue, um, as you saw last weekend, Bangor Daily did a anniversary piece on the Maine Settlement Act. Um, of course, uh, 
the article and it doesn't begin to touch on the complexities of our argument, but um, or the fact that of how we're overcoming those issues economically and, and socially and in all aspects of our lives. And you know, we're not interested in being victims. I mean, we're just not. And we've we have too many um, educated people, bright people that are taking our government to new levels. We have over 19 departments and over 65 programs within Penobscot Nation, and we provide services in every aspect of tribal people's lives. So we truly operate as a, as a sovereign government. The, um, the, the policies of the state of Maine towards the tribes have been, look, we have this relationship. You can't do anything unless we agree. And um, I don't think that was the spirit of the document. So when you look at, I mean, gaming is the most glaring issue because it comes up year after year after year, but there are many others, and uh, and I'll cite a few of those examples, but I think when you have language in the act that talks about access to federal beneficial acts that have passed after 1980, we can't access it unless both the state and the tribes approve on that. I think, first of all, there's some constitutional problems there, and secondly, um, it creates um, basically a second-class uh, Indian nation within Maine that uh, in terms of um, being able to access programs that the federal government deems are um, appropriate in their trust relationship with tribes. So so not only is the, is the state um, taking the position that somehow this document um, gave up our rights to sovereignty, they're also um, blocking the trust responsibility and trust relationship that, that Indian nations have with uh, the federal government. And and to me, that really needs to be looked at because it's not just about gaming. People say, well, they just want casinos. So when our, when our people signed that document back in 1980, you know, to think that decades later when these federal beneficial acts come out that somebody had a crystal ball to say, yeah, we're giving up our rights to that, I mean, I think is, is kind of ridiculous. But, but beyond gaming, there are multiple issues. And one is... Um, you know, certainly environmental and land use um, authorities within our territory. Uh, today, as we sit here, we have a $200 million wind farm ready for permitting in, in our lands in western Maine. A great project, great partners, and uh, will provide jobs and a Maine benefit. So, um, but that sits dormant today because um, we can't get over internally um, the thought of outside agencies stomping around our land, uh, permitting projects that are economic opportunities for our own people within our own territories developed by our own tribe. So um, with our own land use plan, with our own capabilities internally, it just seems absurd because many of those processes are much more stringent than, than the ones on the state side. So, um, so we can't... Uh, it seems like we're challenged at every turn, um, and the Settlement Act is always used as a tool to do so, that. So the, so the state is blocking this well, with their basically, interpretation? Well, basically, right, it was what they're saying through the Attorney General's office is that, um, that the state has the permitting authority on our lands. And, of course, we dispute that. That's never been to court. That has never been uh, tried in a, a legal system. And it's our position that, that we have total regulatory authority within our territory. You know, and, uh, I was talking to uh, Maria earlier, uh, you know, this morning, 
talking about uh, the land claims, and you know, it, it, it that consists of three parties. You know, the the federal government, the state, and the tribes. And so, what were we thinking, or what was? Well, I guess what were we thinking mm-hmm. when we agreed to or allowed the state to develop an implementing act all by itself? And I agree with you. I don't. I think it took away from our direct relationship with the federal government. It took away um, what every other Indian nation in the country enjoys, and that is a federal relationship, which is not always perfect, as we know, and um, hasn't always been perfect. But there are steps being made at that level to rectify the past and to move forward. Tools like the 8A program for disadvantaged businesses, one we take advantage of and do quite well in. Um, Programs like the Tribal Law and Order Act that was recently passed. Another one we're having problems implementing because it lifts the level of fines and um, punishable crimes within our court system. And uh, it's deemed that we're restricted by the Settlement Act, even though that act in many areas would make our community safer and give us jurisdiction not only over our own people, but um, over those people that live in our communities that are not necessarily Penobscot. So um, so what we end up having still is a judicial system that's focused on prosecuting our own people. And it's a race-based system that, that really needs to be changed, and it really needs to focus on the jurisdiction within our territories and when people, just like if you go to New Hampshire or if you go to another country, you're bound by those laws. And um, when people come into our community to live there, um, to spend significant amounts of time there, they have to abide by the laws. And, uh, and it allows us the tools to, to protect our community, not just from ourselves, but from, um, from outsiders yeah, as Absolutely. Well. There, there needs to be some reciprocity between the, the, the tribal court system and the state court system. Um, but also, you know, whenever there's a, a legal question under the land claims, the um, one side, not the tribes, but one side will file suit and they'll file it in state court to determine uh, the results of their question about the land claims. That's well, you know, when, in, when really when this land claims was being negotiated, it was decided that the state and the tribes could change the land claims if they both agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is an end around. Mm-hmm. When you go to a state court and have the state court making a decision totally against the tribes, it puts that change of language or change of meaning directly in favor of the state. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is an abrogation of the land claims and should void it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you raised the crux of the problem. And the, there has never been a dispute resolution process put in place that works for both parties. The one currently in place works perfect for the other side, but doesn't uh, give the tribe its its day and in terms of being heard on, on their grievances. So what you have is a Maine Indian Tribal State Commission that was developed as part of the Settlement Act, developed in statute, that clearly from the language back in 1980 was set up to monitor the effects of the act to um, to also hear disputes and resolve gray areas in the settlement act and to date they have not been able to have an effect on change because um, and you look at a couple of different examples the freedom of information act um, 
of course, we all know the big case with Great Northern and um, tribal leaders threatened with jail and all the things that, that went along with that. And in the end, a state court decided that um, even though FOIA is set up for governmental responsibility to its citizens in terms of information, that they felt like uh, every citizen of Maine should have access to our to our records, even though they're not citizens we're responsible for. So um, Mitzik had twice ruled that FOIA did not apply to the tribes. Um, so, so I think the dispute resolution process, as you as you point out, is totally it, it's it's so egregious that, uh, but it, it it is it is comical in some sense it's a, it's at a, how acceptable it's, it's become. <laughs> And yeah. I think, you know, I often equate it to uh, someone going through a divorce and, and uh, your ex-wife's new husband is the judge looking at your document. <laughs> and I think, exactly. I, so I think, you know, we, 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 we try to go through the process. We've, you, as you know, as a state representative, you work your, um, we've worked the process. We've tried to participate. We've tried to be um, amicable to those processes and they're processes that just don't work and they don't work because the rank and file legislative legislative person the rank and file committee within the legislature does not spend the time or have the institutional knowledge or or any of the history to really focus on this issue with the government to government attention that it deserves and um, so you know as you know, we've had a lot of breakdowns over the last five, six years, and I think um, the tribes are really becoming frustrated that that process doesn't work, and if that process doesn't work, then disputes get settled in state courts or by state legislators, and our legislative process within our communities are totally ignored on these issues. So, um, so again, there are many good people in Augusta, and I don't want to come across like um, everybody's evil and out to get us, but the but the system, the institution has been set up to continue to perpetuate the tribes as political subdivisions and create this parental atmosphere in Augusta that somehow tribes need to be taken care of. And all we want is our land and to be left alone. And I think that with that, you're seeing all over the country, tribes in that situation are becoming hugely successful not and you can point to many examples Cherokee you know building new schools in their counties not just for tribal people but for for non-tribal people you know you go out to New Mexico and that state is driven by the Indian economy and so I think that there are many many opportunities for us to partner and to do well but we really need to take a hard look at this document and say has it been fair has it worked as everybody envisioned it to work and yes, there are going to be some parts of it we'll have to live with. And, and you know, nobody's saying we didn't sign anything. But the problem is we've gotten so far from its original intent that I don't think anybody knows what it means anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, the, the Senate Select Committee on Indian Affairs really needs to take another look at the land claims. And I think that they're in the process or they're thinking about mm -hmm. looking at uh, land claims nationwide to see how, if they're working and, and how they're working. Uh, so I think that's uh, really needed. Um, Maria, do you have any comments? Well, a few things went through my mind as uh, Chief Francis was talking. He talked about back in 1980 that uh, this was really the model agreement. This was huge. This was a, you know, like a watershed victory in Indian country. I even saw that... Um, 
one article, I can't remember which magazine had it, um, hailed as the greatest battle since Little Big Hill won. <laughs> so um, back in the 1980s, it was considered very, very successful. Unfortunately, now it has become the model uh, agreement for what not to do. Um, and Chief Francis talks about the relationships uh, between states and tribes and other parts of the country. Um, we are so far behind the times. Um, we really could be benefiting a lot from collaborations, but we're just not there yet. So, uh, and, and, and the mistakes are, were obvious, so those gray areas. We knew that everything wasn't uh, determined and worked out. Uh, we didn't have time to. Um, you know, we were rushed because of the changing political environment. And like he, he said, that's why the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission was created. But... Um, to no avail. Yeah, yeah no, I just, I think that, you know, when you look at the history of Native nations and its relationships, over and over and over again, there has been programs and acts and all these things passed that people honestly felt at the time were the best things for Indian people. So when you talk about boarding schools, um, when you talk about uh, allotment, the Dawes Act, and all those things that people said, this is going to be great, you know, that we can find them a place in society. Well, none of that has worked because we have a place, and our place is with our people, as it's always been, um, and governing our, um, our lands and focusing on our natural resources and a sustainable lifestyle where there's no... Um, boogeyman in the closet when it comes to tribal, total tribal sovereignty, and when it comes to inherent sovereignty. What it brings is a people that it uplifts a people, and we're already starting to see that within our communities as we grab a little bit back here and there of uh, independence, and I think people are starting to hold their heads high and say, you know what, I'm pretty special. I'm part of something that um, not many people can say they were part of. But again, we, we've, we've looked at the act um, in depth, and, and I think it all goes to that. Every well-intentioned document needs to be looked at over time. Some of the smartest people in this country, or self-proclaimed smart people in this country, have been those senators and those people that have tried to help Indian tribes over, and you always get a little scared of that term, we're being helped, but mm. I think that... Um, you know, some of the brightest minds have tried to figure out how to coexist and to put programs in place that benefit, and they've all failed. So what makes this document um, any different? We're not saying that it has to be burnt. It would be nice, but I think <laughs> that the, um, I, but I think what we are saying is that it needs a good, serious look, I and mean, a well-intentioned look, a good faith look, and we're working, as you mentioned, several angles to do that. One of them is um, I just recently returned from upstate New York with those tribes, and we're focusing on uh, Kim Teehee's office in, in the White House. Uh, the Government Relations Committee uh, at USET has focused its attention on two projects, uh, the Settlement Act reviews and the Carcieri decision. So there are, um, there are several efforts underway to review this act, and maybe at the end of the day, the Senate Select Committee comes back and says, you know, um, we don't think you're right, but um, I doubt that will happen. I think that um, maybe it's somewhere in the middle, but uh, I think a lot of our points are, um, are, are 
not only defendable, but the, they have the moral high ground. And, and it's hard when you get into a room with an institution, and again, I don't blame those individuals in Augusta, but they represent an institution that is responsible. And when you get in there and you have that moral high ground, it's amazing the kind of pushback you get because of the defensive attitude that comes out because the atrocities of the past are, are there and they're, they're recorded and it's part of history. And I think if we're ever going to move forward, we have to acknowledge that and we have to uh, focus on a better tomorrow. And uh, that's what we're focused on. We're, we're willing to walk hand in hand, but, but um, we don't want to continuously be pulled on your path. We want to walk our own path. We want to govern our own people. And we want to move to a better future for everyone. And, but we have to do that in our way. And the Settlement Act does not allow for that. And it's been used as a tool to prohibit that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, when uh, I had a discussion with the Assistant Attorney General a few years ago, and, uh, and he said to me, you know, Donna, w why do you guys keep going back to try to change that act? You know, a deal's a deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's one, of those, one of those things where you agree to it and I'll live with it. But, you know, when that was written... It was written with the intent that it's a live document. And, you know, we look at that as circumstances and times change. And the thought of creating the, uh, the Tribal State Commission was to look at those changes and, and, and try to, you know, uh, make decisions that would uh, make that document uh, fit uh, into the changing times. So, but the, but the one thing that they had going with Mitzik when they first created it, was the chair of that uh, commission was supposed to be uh, a judge. And, uh, of course, it was going to be a state judge, so I think probably them not putting a state judge in there was a, was a good thing. But, I mean, the, the original intent of that, of that commission was to iron those gray areas out and that in recognition that it's a live document, not not something that's in black and white and, and dead. Well, a lot of those issues too, Donna, were really highlighted in the Tribal State Work Group. Um, we went through the two-year process under an executive order from the governor's office to review the act, recommend changes, and, and uh, bring those back. And what really became apparent to me during that process was the um, overwhelming struggle to maintain power over people. And you know, when you look at a Racino, nine miles from our reservation, in one of Maine's largest cities, doing quite well. You know, nobody's, uh, the sky hasn't fallen, and nobody's, um, it, it's not kind of getting to the, the meek picture that was painted before the, the casino, uh, Racino went up. You know, not, after 15 years of, of trying to address uh, the Indian gaming issue in Maine, um, we have that now nine miles from our reservation. We have another one on the ballot this fall. And you have to ask yourself, and, and I use this as an example only, but you have to ask yourself, what, what was the downside, really, to allowing tribes to be economically successful? Well, you have to, you have to look at it from... Um, many points of view, but I think one that continuously comes up is 
with economic power comes political power. And I think there is a, a real fear among some people that the tribes will have more of a meaningful say and in all areas of how this state moves forward. And, and I could think of nothing more beneficial to this state than that very scenario. And I think that um, when you look at different obstacles that have been put in place, you know, it's just really difficult to understand um, why. why. Why such a fierce fight when you look at the trust responsibility breakdown because of um, kind of the wedging of this document between us and the federal government, you know, with water quality standards. We're a riverine people, and yet, you know, the federal government, um, in the NIPTES case, delegates authority to the state who has no such trust responsibility and um, on water quality standards within the Penobscot River. And, you know, we've, to use the term reservation where we live is, is a little bit of a mistruth. We've always been there. We weren't put there, and it's our ancestral land, and we've lived in that waterway for thousands of years, and it's at the core of our culture. It's it's at the core of our spiritual health, and certainly has had an effect on our people physically over the last um, series of decades. So that is one example of our quality of life being affected by others and us not having a meaningful voice in that area. So what did we do about that? Well, what we did was we, we continued to grow our water quality program, continued to do the testing and monitoring, continued to hold people accountable whether we had that authority or not. And um, one example comes to mind a few years ago that um, with the uh, overload of phosphorus in the river from one of the mills, you know, it was our people that caught that 75-mile algae bloom and potentially toxic, and, and we cured that. There were repercussions for the, for the uh, facility, and we were able to move forward. It wasn't a big public fight. It was just do what's right. And now that facility doesn't use phosphorus in that process, and um, and it's been um, positive for hundreds of Maine communities, not just the Penobscot Nation. There are hundreds of communities that live in the Penobscot River Valley. So, um, so we're about quality of life for people, sustainable lifestyles, and progressing our families and elevating people to a point where they are um, they're providing. Uh, assistance in where we're going in the future and not just being left behind and forgotten. So I think from the Settlement Act's perspective, you know, when you look at the work group um, process and when we get to the end of that process and to hear some of the things that we heard in, in those legislative processes, and it just became real apparent to me that the, there's no real serious um, seriousness about changing this act on that side. And you know, when I evaluate it objectively, you have, I ask myself, well, why would there be? And, you know, if it works perfectly for, for them, then um, then there's really no no sense of urgency on their side to, to deal with this issue. Yeah. But, my, you know, the way that I look at it is, you know, I don't think it does work perfectly for them. I mean, it's, a, it's an instrument of control. It's how they control the tribe. And controlling the tribe... Um, I don't think is is uh, something that they should be doing, and it's certainly not uh, to their benefit to keep us uh, under their thumb. Uh, 
And when you look at other states that have uh, agreed to work in partnership with the tribes, for instance, New Mexico, and I keep bringing this up, their tourism industry, you know, they bring in 20, I'm sorry, $6 billion a year. Um, that's to the state's advantage. That's to everyone's advantage. And so this, this uh, land claims, I think, is, uh, is an old instrument, and uh, I think uh, we need to sort of set it aside because it's of no use anymore to anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. I mean, uh, the, uh, it, it's, and I'll take our economic development efforts as an example. We're in the 8A program. We do federal contracting. And um, there are opportunities for us to bring manufacturing to back to Maine in a big, big way. Um, not just for tribal people, but for, for state citizens as well. And it's amazing how difficult it is to get people to talk to you about that. And, uh, you know, we're doing business all over the country, but not in Maine. And so I think that... Um, you're right that while the control factor seems to be the driving force, I don't think anybody takes a step aside to see what, what's being lost. And um, there's tons being lost. And when I look at, from a public relations standpoint, um, in reading the article last week, you look at some of the comments about, you know, well, let's just take all that welfare back. Let's, um, let's focus on... Uh, you know, all the benefits the tribe receives from the state and their dependency on the state. And just nothing could be further from the truth. We receive very, very little funding from the state of Maine for anything. And I think the LIHEAP program comes to mind and uh, Maine Indian education gets, gets some monies. It's interesting how over 30 years the same comments still <laughs> circulate because when I was researching newspapers back in the 60s, those in the 70s when the land claims first started coming out, those are the same sorts of comments they were making back then. It's just unbelievable. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, in my job now, it's amazing our people, you know, they, they come in day after day, so where's my opportunity? I want my opportunity. And most of them are not looking for a handout. They've done the work. They've done the work by getting educated, by being in the workforce. And, and, you know, this economic downturn, I mean, we've been living in a, a recession for centuries. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. this is nothing new to us. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that if, if the state put as much time and energy and effort and money into partnering with us and, and figuring out new projects and new things to do with the tribes, uh, We'd be so everybody. This whole state would be so much better off. Yeah, and you know the and and say, well, a deal's a deal. We need to keep in mind also that um, if the land claims money got returned, not one dollar of that would be going back to the state of Maine. Right. The state of Maine did not pay a nickel yeah. in that land claim settlement. Matter of fact, when we got the settlement monies, we had to buy our own land back that we um, were fighting for to begin with. And we've done that, and we've also put um, trust funds together. We haven't squandered our land claims money. Um, you know, we look at our economic past. Have we had some economic failures? Sure we have. But you look at state government. Sure. They've had several. <laughs> and um, yeah. so it's not, you know, failing is part of this business, and it's it's it happens, and as long as it happens with the best of intentions and with the right motives and all those things and 
nothing corrupt happening and, and all of that, then, you know, that's part of doing business. But the bottom line is we're hugely successful and we've, we've been able to self-sustain ourselves despite this document. Yes, we, we receive federal funding for programs. That is a trust responsibility. That's not a handout. And um, we, we work under self-determination. We manage all our own programs. We, um, we're under self-governance in our health clinic. And we, we are totally comfortable taking care of ourselves. Matter of fact, we get a little uncomfortable when others try to take care of us. And I think that comes from a long history of, of being exploited. And, um, and, other, and again, you know, it's not my goal as a tribal leader to run around crying about the past. I think that it's important. People need to know about it. But at the same time, I want people to understand that we're here today due to no miracle at all. We're here today because of the strength of our people and that and they've held on. You were talking earlier about civil rights and those movements. If it wasn't for the strength of those people saying, I'm keeping my language, I'm going to keep my family here on the reservation despite poverty, I'm going to do all those things that are going to keep this tribe prosperous for hundreds of years. Um, those are the people that are the real heroes in our community and and those people still, and those strengths still exist today, and they exist in a much, much different way. You know, I, I travel a lot and spend a lot of time with tribal leaders from, from all over the country, and I have a good friend at Nez Perce, and he's a, the vice chairman, and I went into an EPA meeting with him, and I think it exemplifies how the relationships have, have deteriorated and how tribal capabilities have not... Uh, been acknowledged, and um, and they are now. If you look all around the country um, at our economy, at the state of our environment, with climate change and all the things that have taken place, what do you hear? You hear about sustainable lifestyles, and there are no greater experts in this country than Native people. But back to my point was he, the EPA guy, went on to say to him, "You used to bring this peace pipe every time you came to a ceremony with us. So you don't bring that anymore." And um, and so Brooklyn stood up and he said, he said, well, I don't bring that pipe anymore because I have to bring lawyers. And, uh, mm. and at the end of the day, it's about you keeping your word and you haven't done that once. And I think that's what we're saying to the state of Maine, keep your word. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, when we have disputes, deal with us as a government. We deal with each other on a government to government basis. Don't run to court and get your own courts to rule against us. Don't legislate things that have negative effects on Native tribes without consulting with Native tribes. Um, have a productive two-way dialogue. And I think we can handle the answer being no. We can handle this isn't going to work for us. We can handle those things. But what we can't handle is to be minimized and marginalized to a point where we're not even having a meaningful voice in those processes. So, um, so I think for me... You know, the state of Maine really needs to focus on high-level government-to-government dispute resolution processes. The, there's always going to be, I don't care if it's the most honest judge in the country, if he's a state judge, there's always going to be that perception of unfairness. And, um, and I'll give you an example. We, we have a case in our tribal court. Um, it was the Kaufman case, and it had to do with the bed of the river. The court concluded that um, the tribe owns the bed of the river and therefore um, the resources in it 
uh, could not be taken by another individual. Well, that the state's position is, well, that, that's great that your court ruled that, even though they have full faith and credit, and even though um, this judge is now a state court judge that ruled on this. Um, after a year of deliberation, she ruled on it, and uh, so today they don't acknowledge that decision, and currently we're in a conversation about the definition of our reservation, which we've gotten to the point where we just can't compromise another inch. When you talk about a people that had 12 million acres of, of, of land to roam and hundreds of thousands of, of tribal people and are reduced to 2,400 tribal members and a few hundred thousand acres, um, I don't think it's too much to ask, Settlement Act or not, to just be left alone within those territories and allow us to, to prosper moving forward. So, um, so for us, you know, we're constantly, you have all these definitions of what sovereignty means, you have all these definitions of what um, our reservation means. Um, I've heard from the state side, I've heard three different definitions about what makes up our reservation. Well, it's just the islands. Well, it's to the threat of the river. Well, no, we have this donut theory. And, of course, our, our uh, reservation is the, in the Penobscot River, and the Penobscot River does make up our reservation. And, and um, you know, documents say what they say, and, and signatures mean what they mean. But at the end of the day, we're the Penobscot people, and that history and that rich, thick heritage is is there, it's documented, and nobody can dispute that. And again, it goes back to that moral high ground uh, argument. When you have the moral high ground, it seems like the points of your argument really don't come center stage. It's always what can be done to kind of um, to block you from, from making that argument. So um, so that's kind of my perspective on, on the Settlement Act. I, I, I'll work tirelessly over the next four years as chief to bring attention to it, to try to make changes to it, to get people involved, and hopefully um, people see the value in what we're trying to accomplish moving forward as a people, and it has very little, if anything, to do with slot machines. Yeah, and you know, I, and you did make a point a few years ago, uh, you know, you said, uh, we as Penobscot people, we, we live here. You know, we're, we're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And this is our home, just like it is uh, everybody else in the state of Maine. This is our home as well. So, you know, we're not going to destroy it. And as a matter of fact, I think that uh, philosophically a lot of uh, people globally are now looking to uh, Native people for the answers for environment and global warning and how to sustain, uh, how to keep sustaining the environment. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the state of Maine really needs to, to start changing some of their paradigms and some of their th ways of thinking. Uh, Maria, do you have some thoughts? Um, I, I always hear the deal is a deal um, time and time again. And um, what always runs through my mind when I hear that is that um, the Maine Indian, uh, well, the, the Implementing Act and the Settlement Act was supposed to be dynamic, it was supposed to be fluid. And um, we talked earlier about MIDSIC, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, being that um, group that would handle those gray areas and those ambiguous um, parts of the document. And um, so if if change was planned for that document and it hasn't happened, then um, 
there's a deal that's broken right there. So we're looking for changes to happen within the document and, you know, rush to this conclusion knowing that we had a mechanism in place to address changes down the road and that that's not happening. So that's just one of many. And um, I also like to point out that um, there's been 13 litigated uh, cases in the past 30 years. So that's, you know, almost every two years mm -hmm. is a, a major um, extensively litigated um coming out of the provisions of the main implementing act. So um, just disappointing. Um, I think the document's disappointing in all respects to tribal people and um, could go on and on talking about those things. But Well, I think, it, you know, the deal is a deal argument is, is kind of comical when you think about a lot of the deals that were made with Indian people over our history. Mm -hmm. One example comes to mind with the Indian purchases. You know, you had... Um, a tribal governor, Penobscot, go to live on that land, said, okay, this is where we're going to be. He went there, he fished, he took care of his family and was burnt out of there because um, they wanted that land back for taverns for the military. So deals haven't always been a deal. Mm -hmm. and, um, and certainly this deal, and the deal is always a deal if it works how you envisioned it working, but we obviously don't, and I think that, um, you know, we need to get back to a relationship that's not based on mistrust and not based on oppressive documents, and we need to get one that says, you know, we support. I mean, the, the tribes of Maine are such an um, integral part of this state. It is such a, you know, to me, they're the jewel of the state and it should be promoted and it should be enhanced. And, and people in Augusta should be proud that in New England, you have four Wabanaki nations in this state, five communities. That's a lot for a New England state. And, um, you know, against 500 years of, of just problem after problem after problem and great dying periods and 100 years of war and all the things that have taken place in our history, um, to have Indian people still here, still functioning in the governmental form that they have for thousands of years, to me, that this state should take a lot of pride in that. And we take a lot of pride in living in this state, and as you mentioned earlier, would do nothing to hurt it. Matter of fact, we want to we want to work to make uh, the future better here for all people, and we feel we have some ways to do that. And I think that um, you know, if this state is ever going to reach its full potential, it needs to get back to acknowledging that there are tribal nations in this state. We need to work cooperatively with them. We need to enhance their ability to be productive in a, in a state that we all care about. And we're going to do that anyway. We're going to grow, and we're going to be productive, and we're going to provide for our people. And we're going to overcome the things that face us. And I'm confident in that because of the human resource we have and the tribal leadership we have. But um, in the end, you know, I, I think if we could base a relationship on trust and just get some examples of positive things, positive change that, um, that positively affect the tribes for, for once, that I think we can start from there. Okay. Last word, Maria. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I, you know, Kirk, I, I agree with you 100%. And, uh, and, you know, we certainly have a lot to offer the state of Maine. 
and the state of Maine can certainly take lessons from across the country of the success of, of other states, uh, even Washington State, mm -hmm. that is uh, partnered with the tribes there, and they're, they're very highly successful. And they have actually recognized the sovereignty of the, the tribes out uh, in Washington State. Uh, so with that, we will end our, end our show. And uh, I thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my co-host, Maria Girard, uh, and my special guest, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Join us again next month for Wabanaki Windows. Thank you. <laughs>